Those to the book of Genesis chapter 12. We're going to spend most of our time in chapter 15 today, but in Genesis chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we have um, just purchased some new ones. They're actually the translation that I work out of, the Christian Standard Bible. If you would like to have one, they're at the back of the room. Just see us after our worship gathering. As you're turning there, we are in week three of a series called Pursuing the Promise, Stories from Genesis. Walking through the book of Genesis, seeing common threads, common rhythms that God uses to help us to know Him and understand Him and, and see what He has provided for us in the person of Jesus. In week one, we looked at the story of Adam and Eve and and creation. Last week, we looked at Noah and the ark and recreation and what what took place there. And, And this week, we're going to look at Abraham. Now, most for me growing up, when I would read through the book of Genesis, I read through it almost like it was a story that was being unraveled to me as time passed. Maybe you don't remember, or, or maybe in, in your own life, you remember a time when there was not the internet. Does anyone remember not having the internet? Okay. Uh, when we were introduced to said internet, it brought lots of good things and even some bad things, lots of bad things. Uh, before the internet as we know it, before the iPhone, before we tried to make fetch happen, there were lots of things that we would see. Uh, And I remember for me when I was introduced to a a blog and people could give their live journal every week updating you as to what was taking place in their life. Before there was MySpace, there was this thing called Zanga and you could write whatever you wanted and you for whatever reason believed that people should read about said life. It was a very interesting concept. As I've read through the book of Genesis from my childhood, even till recently, I read it almost like that. That God gave us the story of Adam and Eve. And he just came to the point where he was concluding that story. He rested. He began to write the next day about Noah and the ark. So I don't want us to see the book of Genesis like that. The way that I would encourage us to see the book of Genesis is not like a blog. It's more like a biography written by the person of Moses. And Moses is telling us this is the story of God's people. This is how I have worked in God's people. This is how I have brought about redemption for God's people. And in the retelling of these stories, God is not realizing the depravity of the world. He's not seeing it as it happens. He's actually revealing that to us so that we can understand when we look in the world in which we live and see how broken it happens to be. That's been the case from the very beginning. We're sinful to the point where we don't realize it. We're sinful to the point where we don't even know that sin is taking place in us or around us. The world is overwhelmingly sinful. It reminds me of what took place last night when we released our children into the wild Uh, Before the sun went down, they were beggars. After the sun went down, they were trick-or-treaters. And as they walked from house to house, they were given candy. The thing about being a parent is you get to have a candy tax. I don't know what your candy tax is for your children. For me, I will typically take things like peanut butter M&Ms. They just know to hand those to me now. They don't even try to eat them. Uh, I will eat the occasional Butterfinger, though it gets stuck in my teeth. But as I'm eating candy last night, there came a point in my candy digestion where I noticed it doesn't even taste like anything anymore. 
there's just this sugary film running through everything. But I kept cramming it in because that's what chubby people do. And as I kept cramming the candy in, it kept being the same problem, just more of it. When we look at sin in the original scriptures, when we look at sin in the book of Genesis, that's what we see taking place with the people. They are overwhelmingly sinful, incredibly sinful, and things are taking place and they don't even realize how bad they happen to be. But God keeps interweaving. God keeps inter intervening. God keeps moving in this. Pointing out to these people that they are not people who are in need of help. They are people in need of hope. They need an infusion of God's hope. They need God to step in and provide that for them. And God chooses to do that through normal people. Everyday people. The story of Adam and Eve is hard to understand for us because we don't live in a world where everyone walks around naked, thankfully. When we look at the story of Noah, it's unique to consider that God would flood the world. But when we get to the story of Abraham and what takes place in the book of Genesis chapter 12, we notice that this is beginning to be the story of a family. Look at this math. The first few chapters, 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, are 2,000 years. And in the next few chapters, it covers 25 years. We shift from God giving the background for, them to, from the, for the depravity of the world to right here, God telling how His promise is going to be provided for us through one single family. If we're giving a Mount Rushmore of Old Testament Bible people, you have Moses, you have Abraham, and you can argue about the other two. But here we have this very first incredibly important person that we need to look at. The person of Abraham. Let me give you a little backdrop as to what's taken place thus far as we've moved. Chapter 11, after we finish the story of Noah, where we see that he will eventually fail and fall. We get to chapter 11. They attempt to build a tower to God. All the peoples of the earth. They've been building up. God comes down to meet with them. God comes down to acknowledge and see their sinfulness. In chapter 12, we're introduced to Abram. And for the rest of the book and the rest of the Bible, he is this incredibly important figure. Jesus would say about Abraham, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see me. He saw it and he was glad. The promise of Jesus echoed in Abraham. When we read through Hebrews chapter 11 verses 8 through 10, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise, part of his family line. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abram, when we meet with him, is a nomad. But he did not start out that way. He came from a family. God calls him from that family in Genesis chapter 12 and says, I know that you belong to them, but now you belong to me. Leave everything that you know and follow me. It's the same rhythm that we see with story. With the story of Noah. God called out, Noah went. God calls out, Abraham goes. God meets with him and says to him, I'm going to do something unique through your family's line. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. If you're in your Bible or on your app of your Bible, with it in your face, feel free to read alongside with me. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God meets with him and says, Through you, I'm going to undo the curse of Adam. I cursed Adam because of sin. But now I am intervening and I'm going to bless the world through you. So you see the undoing of those things that took place in Genesis chapter 3. The difficulty between humans and the serpent. God says to Abram, all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. I'm going to undo that curse. The difficulty between man and woman. Overcome. I will overcome the difficulties between man and woman through you, Abram. Um, there's a curse on the promised land. I'm, I'm going to make, or there's a curse on the land God makes. I'm going to make a promise to you that you will be fruitful and multiply to the ends of the earth. God doing God things through this human being. God is overcoming His judgment and the ramifications of sin that have cursed the world. We see this incredible promise of God who meets with Abram, the nomadic person, And Abram says, I'm going to get up and go. But that doesn't tell us that when he got up and went, that things did not seem to get bad. In chapter 13, on the very next page, we see that Abram, he gives his wife to Pharaoh to be in a harem. That takes place in the Bible. That's a great devotion time for parents, for for your children this week. Explain a harem. In chapter 14, you get to the person of Melchizedek. When you see the person of Melchizedek, he is one who is like Abram, Adam, and Noah. The story of this very important figure. But you also see the story of Cain, rather the story of Lot, who is the nephew of Abram, who gets into a disagreement with his his uncle. His father's passed away. When he gets into this disagreement, we notice that he moves east. Some tricky things happen in the language. Because when we read through the story of Lot in Genesis chapter 14, you see that Lot sets his eyes on the east. When you look at Abram, he does not set his eyes on the, on the east or west. God sets his face towards the west. Whenever you are moving in the east in the original language, it is taking you to a bad place. Let me give you some examples. If you would like to disagree, that's okay. It's just right here in the Bible. Cain moved east to build a city. Babel moved east to build a city. Lot moves east to a wicked city. Over and over, as you go, if we were to go east, we're in the ocean. We know how it happens. As you move east, there's wickedness. God's using this language intentionally for us. Lot, if you are unfamiliar, is the princess peach of the Bible. He cannot keep himself out of trouble. That's a Super Mario reference. Abraham is a conquering hero facing insurmountable odds. When we meet with Abram in Genesis chapter 14, there's a situation that they're facing. There's a war between four kings and five kings. Some of those kings have defeated giants. They get wiped out by another group. And those men take Lot captive. So Abram has to roll in and save them. He has to go do something to help them. So he goes down to the ranch house. He grabs 318 of his fiercest warriors with the Abraham house brand on their chest. And he says, hey, we're going out. God seems to work what looks like less to do more over and over in Scripture and over and over in my life and in yours. God moving. As he does this, at the very end of the story, a man named the king of Sodom, who's not a great person, I don't know if you understand the history of Sodom. It ain't good. 
king of Sodom, he says to Abram, hey, there's this land that's there from the people that you've just defeated because Sodom didn't defeat anybody. Give me the people, you take the land, and you start your own thing. And Abram says no because that's not the plan that God has. Now, it would seem to be the plan because this is the land of promise, some would say. It would seem to be what God would want to have happen in the situation. But Abram looks and it sees that it is not what God wants. How often do things that seem simple, practical, and effective that are right within our reach end up not being what God wants for us? God has a plan, Abraham says, and I will stick to it. My language, not his. So we get to chapter 15. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And right there, we have a breakdown of what's going to take place through Genesis chapter 15. We have this narrative story, and we see three things that will happen. God for Abram will will provide a direction. He will protect him diligently. And he will promise deliverance. After these events, let me give those to you one more time. He provides a direction. He protects diligently. And he promises deliverance. What is the direction that God provides? Do not be afraid. That's a direction. It's a command. It's an instruction from God. Do not be afraid. Why would he ever be afraid? What would happen in the life of Abram where he would have been afraid? We just came out of a battle where he is at war with literal giants and giant slayers. And when he comes out of it, his heart, very much like mine and yours would be, is beating fast. God is telling him not to be afraid because everything about his current situation is fear invoking. Remember, he's just went to a war with these giants. I remember being in high school. There was a night we're leaving homecoming. I know that BCS had homecoming this week. Shout out, Eagles. And uh, when I was in high school, I'm leaving our homecoming football game and and there was a car that was following me and my friends. Just for point of reference, I drove a, a 1986 Ford Escort that... The muffler didn't work, so there was no way I was going to be sneaky and get away from them that way. And it only went about 34 miles an hour, so there was no way that I was going to be fast and get away from them that way. They followed us for about a mile and a half, honking their horn and yelling things that I did. I had to have explained to me later. And as they're yelling these things to me, all that I could think of is, I want to be away from them. And I get to the other side of that, and when you sit down and you settle, your heart beats fast. God says to Abram, don't be afraid because he has just come through a situation where fear would would have overcome him. God says, don't be afraid. And then he goes on to say, I am your shield. There are numerous passages in the scripture where God reverses himself as our shield. Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. And then we get to John 16, verse 33. And we see Jesus using protective language to talk about what he does for me and what he does for you in a world that is full of troubles. In a world that is full of giants and giant slayers chasing after our Ford escorts. He says this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in the world. But be be courageous. 
I've conquered the world. God doing things that don't seem to make sense if you're just measuring us versus them. Do not be afraid. We are to operate out of God's withness in the face of every situation and every circumstance. You see this passage telling him he will be his shield. The word shield there is is a verb in the original language. God is saying, I'm going to shield you. I'm going to protect you. You don't just have a warrior looking around. You have a God who surrounds you. Your reward will be very great. The Word of the Lord is an important part of the Bible. You see it regularly. The Word of the Lord, this is the first time we ever see it in Genesis chapter 15. And it's the macro of what we experience. The the idea of the Word of the Lord here. Abram's been walking. He's been trusting God. He doesn't know Him, but he's getting to know Him. And the Word of the Lord comes to him to offer assurance, to offer direction, to to offer correction, to offer provision... Abraham's been walking with the Lord and he is keen to his voice. In the micro, when we go from up here to here, as we walk with God, His Word, that we get to know that you actually hold in your hand, it comes to us to encourage us, to affirm us, to remind us that He provides a direction. That He protects us. That He is our provision. That's who God is out of the gate stating who He is to us through the story of Abram. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Since I am childless and the heir of my house is a leaser of Damascus. See, God, you've been telling me this story that you're going to bless the entirety of the world through me. But I'm super old and my wife ain't doing great herself. Can you tell me what's going to happen? Abraham knows this God, but he does not understand the extent of what this God can do. Friends, how many of us are followers of Jesus and have a short-sighted trust that's shaped like that? We know Him. But we don't know or trust the extent of what He can do. How many of us second-guess the promises of God because of the problems in our lives? All things work together, God says to us in Romans. And we meet those with large buts. B-U-T-S. But cancer. But corona. But divorce. But death. But the economy. All things are not good, but what Scripture has told us and the promise that God has made to us is that He is always taking these things that are swirling and spinning for the sake of evil and He's working them together for good. God is unstoppable. His power is inexplainable. Abram Abram continued, Look, you've given me no offspring. All that I've got is this one ranch hand. And I don't know what to do with him. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. This guy who works for me, that's how you're going to do this? This is a bad story. You promised me children and I've got him. Abram does what all of us do. He attempts to make rational sense of the direction of God. Attempting to make God lesser. To bring God down. So the word of the Lord comes to him. 
this one, he's not going to be your heir. But he's all I got. I'm 80. Sarah's 75. We've been around since the Dead Sea was sick. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars. If you're able to count them... So, of course, Abram looks at the, scar, the, the scars. He's probably got those from that fight. He looks at the stars. He can't count those. God's past faithfulness is kind of always tied to the, our, to the future in the Bible. It's not only tied to the future in the Bible, it's tied to you. The past faithfulness of God is always tied to your present and your future. If you want to see how God works, you look at what has al- God has already done for you. We're always pointed to the, to the promise fulfilled in the person of Jesus. God delivered. God delivered. We're in this battle in Genesis chapter 14. It's called the battle of the ten kings, but there's only nine kings here. Abram is a representative of another king. This God intervenes and interjects. He was the tenth king miraculously working out his battle. God uses promises in Genesis using innumerable things to explain the extent of all that he can do. God is always saying, my promise, which is in front of us, I can't give you words. I can just show you how immeasurable my blessings are. Genesis chapter 13, he uses similar language when he says, I will make you like the dust of the earth. If you've ever dusted your home, just imagine that to the ends of the earth. Here, I will make you like the stars of the sky. Abram believed the Lord and he was, it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a clause explaining their relationship. If you've ever been around a good storyteller, they give you details from the past which will keep you captivated while they tell the story. My mother-in-law is an incredible storyteller. If you ever sit down with her, she is the best. And she's such a good storyteller because she does this. Even if you don't understand every detail that's taken place before, she will let you know everything that's happening while she tells the story. That's what Moses is doing here. She gives you details that you need to know from the past as she talks about the present, keeping you captivated. And she'll drop the occasional, wait a minute, just to help you catch up. That's what Moses does as he writes to us in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. When he says to us in this passage, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him his righteousness. That's not an in the moment situation. That's already taken place. And the writer of the book is saying to us, this is a truth we don't need to let go of. You believe the Lord, it was credited to you as righteousness. Moses is doing that. Wait a minute. You see Abraham. That's what God is saying to us through Moses. Belief. Trust. Friends, faith is not righteousness. God is not even saying that he will treat your faith as righteousness. What we're being told is that the Christian, if you are in Jesus, you have put on the person of Christ. And we are wearing his righteousness because he was covered in our sin. There is a Bible teacher named Paige Benton Brown, and she's as good as it gets, if not better. And she says this, that we, to paraphrase, can wear the righteousness of Jesus because he wore your sin on the cross. It was worn there. He's affirming everything that Abraham believed in the promise from John chapter 8 verse 56. He's affirming that by grace we're saved through faith and not of our own works lest anybody should boast. No one can be good enough. But what about the book of James? Because we love a good what about. 
Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac and his son an altar? We receive. But what's happening there when James makes that point is he's talking about the response of Abraham that we see here. We see Abraham, Abram, who has believed and trusted the Lord, who has received the righteousness, now he acts because of it. We receive and we respond. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Again, Romans, Paul says this. It was credited to him as righteousness. In Galatians, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This belief leads to action. This action does not cause belief. This passage is showing us, unveiling for us, unraveling for us that the people of God receive his blessing and we respond to it. So if you're sitting here in this room, and you are, have you received the blessing of God in the person of Jesus? And if so, in what ways are you responding to it? Action does not cause belief. Belief causes action. How are you acting? What are you doing? If I were to have a large mirror, I would say, what am I doing? He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land that you will possess. Brought you up is Moses' language again. Moses' language. Describing how God would bring him up out of Egypt. Then you've got Abram who believes God, who has a doubting moment. I don't know if that's ever intercepted you. You trust Jesus, but you've got a doubting moment. Maybe that doesn't happen in Lake Jackson in 2020. Lord, how can I know that I'll possess it? God, I need something tangible. I need something that I can take hold of. Something that I can grab onto. It's what we see in the New Testament when when it's said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, but just could you help my unbelief? And there's a possibility even today that you are a believer but you could really use God to help your unbelief. He said to him, Bring me a three-year-old cow. Is that a big cow, Danny? A three-year-old cow? It's huge. Just big, fat cow. Bring me a three-year-old female goat. Like the ones that make the cheese at the Mexican restaurants we go to. And bring me a three-year-old ram. I don't know what they do. A turtle dove and a young pigeon. Not an old pigeon. We don't need that old pigeon. Bring me all of these things. Abraham, who has received God's blessing, who is doubting, even in the midst of it, he responds. Because sometimes obedience has to be what we take hold of things with. He did. He, his actions here line up with what James 2 has said to us. His actions say that he trusts God. What do your actions say? Verse 10. So he brought all these to him. He cut them in half. He laid, that's how you do it. He laid the pieces opposite each other. They did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down to the carcasses. But Abram, he drove them away. This is called covenant cutting from everything that I've read. Everybody talks about it. 
they know more than me. And as you read about covenant cutting, there is a deal that's being struck between the king and the lesser. The king is the greater, provides protection and justice for the lesser. In response, the lesser, the subject, will provide food for the Lord's table, train men for the army, a portion of produce and profit, loyal obedience to word and law, and what will take place in this covenant cutting ceremony is the lesser will walk through the carcasses saying, Hey, you see these dead things? Let me die if I break my promise to you. But this story goes a little different. Verse 12. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram. Put on his CPAP, knocked out. Suddenly, great terror and darkness descended on him. And then the Lord said to him, Know this for certain. Your offsprings will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. That's not a great story. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Abram, I'm going to do everything that I've promised you that I'm going to do. I'm going to fulfill every promise that I've made. I'm going to do God things. You just won't see it. Not in its fulfillment. Not in its fruition. In the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquities of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God allowing things to reach its full measure. Because God is just and He is merciful. And God is patient with sin. I'm going to let this happen. But they're never going to turn away from their sin. Because God's doing something in the passage. I don't want us to miss it. He is simultaneously working out plans of judgment and salvation for His people. He is going to judge darkness and sin simultaneously, offering salvation and mercy to those who would turn to Him and believe. Because God is, one man says, as one pastor says, uh, says God is always all of who He is in all of what He does. God is always completely just and always completely merciful. When the sun had set and it was dark, here's where this gets odd. Verse 17, when, as if this hasn't been odd thus far with the carcasses and such. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. But the lesser's supposed to pass through. The lesser is supposed to declare the promise. The lesser is supposed to say, I should die if I break my promise. The lesser is supposed to bring food for the king's table. The lesser is supposed to provide trained men for the army. The lesser is supposed to provide produce and profit. The lesser is supposed to provide loyal obedience to word and law. The lesser is supposed to walk through and say, let me die if I don't fulfill my promise. But here's the thing. This king that we're talking about, he doesn't need food for the Lord's table. This king that we're talking about, he doesn't need trained men for an army. He doesn't need produce and profit. He doesn't need loyal obedience to word and law. He is completely God in every way that He can be God, reigning and ruling over the entirety of the universe because He made the entire thing. The lesser doesn't need to pass through. But for the lesser to know the promise of God, the greater must. So God has just said, I've made a promise and I'm going to keep my promise. I'm doing everything. 
Because God is always in everything. God passes through. God makes a statement. God says to Abram, I'm going to do what only I can do. How many of us in our own lives, in our own hearts, look at situations and we try to fix stuff and then we try to, uh, then when things get undone, we try to fix it again and we're spinning every single direction. God says, Stop. Because I'm working out everything together for the good of those who love me and who are called according to my purpose. God is working things out. The fact that only God passes between these pieces is remarkable and it shows the promise depends on Him. And him alone. Paul Carter, Canadian pastor, eh, says this, I'm going to do for you what I'm going to do through you. I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing to the ends of the earth. But the blessing that you bless with is always tied to me. Because Jesus keeps our obligations. He pays for our failures. For all their promises of God have their yes in Jesus. God assumes our side of the bargain and He keeps our end of the deal. Do you trust that God has counted His righteousness to you? Because if your righteousness is based in anything other than the person of Jesus, then it is filthy rags and rotten trash and you need to walk away from it. And I'm not just saying that to unbelieving people. I would say that to believers in the room, myself included. If I'm counting my righteousness because I do this, I say that, I act this way, then that is rotten, filthy trash. And the righteousness of God for us is the person of Jesus and Jesus alone. Because He not only is the one who provides a direction for us, He is our provision. He not only protects us diligently, He is our protection. He not only promises deliverance, He is the promise. We short sell the ability of God when we say, you don't know what I have done. I don't. You may say that to a preacher or a pastor or a friend or a co-worker or to someone on the tweeter. I do not know what Christ... I do not know. You do not understand all that I've done and the bad that I've done. And I don't. And no one who responds to you will. But I do know this. I know what Christ did. And if you're not a follower of His, I would ask you, will you receive the blessing and become part of God's sin-crushing promise in Jesus? Trusting in that. Abram not seeing the promise fulfilled is like Moses not going into the land later. We see this over and over, but the promise always holds steady. It always holds secure in Jesus. And for those of us who are in Christ, I would ask this yet one more time. How are you responding in a way that shows that you trust Him? Practically, tangibly, actively trust Him. I want us to bow our heads this morning. There is a possibility that you've never placed your trust in Christ. And you like to think you're a good person and compared to the people around you, you may be. But the hope for eternity that God has provided for you that will affect this life and the next comes not from your goodness but from His. Because He keeps His promise. We can't. And if you're here and you've never placed your faith in that, the sin, the sin-crushing promise of Jesus, then I would encourage you to trust Him today. You can connect with me. I'll, I'll be over on my right-hand side. Or you can follow up with us and we'll touch base with you this week through the site that we placed on the screen earlier. 
And for those of us who are believers, how are you responding to the promise that you've received? Are we working our way to exhaustion? Missing that everything starts with what Christ has done. Our response is to what Christ has done. So Jesus, we trust you this morning. We believe that possibly you will save. That definitely you're able to save. And assuredly, your salvation directs us. You are our protection. You are our provision. You are the promise. So let us hold fast and firm to you. We ask this in Christ's powerful name. Everybody in the room.